0: Let me tell you about the Blue Cash Preferred card from American Express with 6% cash back at U.S. supermarkets on up to $6,000 in purchases. That means you get 6% cash back on chocolate chip cookies, double chocolate chip cookies, and the elusive triple chocolate chip cookie. It's cash back, backed by the service and security of membership. Start earning cash back at amexbluecash.com. Terms apply.
1: Hey, it's Toby. My awesome publisher, Overlook Press, is running a contest to give away three sets of the City Trilogy, which is my three books. They're going to give away one set each to a listener in North America, a listener in the UK or Europe, and a listener in Australia, New Zealand, Asia, Africa, South America, basically the rest of the world. So, how do you enter this contest? Well, there are actually three ways. One is to sign up for the Crime Writers On newsletter. And to do that, you go to crimewriterson.com. A second way you can do is to tweet to me, at NH and to my publisher, which is at Overlook Press, and use the following hashtags. If you're in North America, do hashtag T-B-A-L-L-N-A. If you're in the UK or Europe, It's hashtag T-B-A-L-L-E-U. And if you're anywhere else in the world, it's hashtag T-B-A-L-L-T-W. And you can always go on our Facebook page. There is an announcement with the rules and if you just leave a comment on the announcement and also where you are from so I know which zone to put you in for the drawing and that will do it. We're gonna pick the winners on July 11th and then on our July 16th episode, we'll announce the winners. Okay, good luck.
2: Hey, Rebecca here. You've heard us say it before. A great way to support this podcast is to do the shopping that you would have done on Amazon.com by using the Amazon.com link at CrimeWritersOn.com. We got a lot of feedback last week. Some of you loved it that we got rid of Toby's list of Amazon items that our listeners bought. And some of you hated it. So, what to do? What to do? What to do? Now Toby
3: will read some items purchased through the Amazon link
1: crime swiffer sweeper dry sweeping pad refills for floor mop with febreze lavender vanilla and comfort set 32 count pup peroni original dog treats 14 inch by 22 inch rubber safety bath mat white
2: Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. This week we're looking at what's been on TV, shows that continue to advance our understanding of cases we thought we already knew, and some that don't. We're talking about ESPN's five-part documentary, OJ Made in America and the Investigation Discovery special on the Adnan Syed case. So joining me now to do all of that and much more is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin.
0: Rebecca, it's so great to be asked back to the basement.
2: (laughs) And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator and licensed PI, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also with us is our favorite island boy, Negative Nelly crime noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Ahoy. Wait, Toby,
1: greetings from vacation.
2: Yeah, why don't you let us know where you're connecting to us from right now, Toby?
1: I uh, I'm on Bear Island in Lake Winnipesaukee. That's Bear B E A R, right? Not not like Bear ass. Yeah, okay. Yeah, bear Bear. <laughs> like I, apparently the story was a guy back in the day was camping over here and was attacked by a bear and fought him off with a knife. He was attacked by a bear on an island. Correct. Could be so, worse. Could that's be where I am.
2: Worse. So did well, you get to watch the NBA championship this week, Toby?
1: I did with my buddy who's from San Francisco.
2: And what did you think?
1: It was a great game and he was quite bummed. So I think the parent in your house finally stopped saying,
2: give the ball to LeBron. Yeah, <laughs> get the ball. Well, there's also more big news for Toby. Aside from your big book giveaway this week and aside from the fact that your basketball team won maybe the greatest championship in NBA history, your Amazon Items Read has a brand new theme song. Uh, let's just remind our listeners what that sounds like.
0: Now Toby will read some items
3: purchased through the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com.
2: So, Laura, did you hear the new theme song for uh, Toby's Amazon Reads before we started recording this evening?
3: I did. My whole family listened to it tonight. And what do you think? Does it seem
2: like a good fit for Toby or not?
3: Um, well, my husband thinks it sounds sort of like the Munchkins uh, from The Wizard of Oz.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I thought it had kind of a tropical feel, so I thought it was appropriate for this week.
1: So, Tropical Munchkin.
3: That's how I think of you each totally
1: and every. fits. I
2: think of you all the time, Toby. All right. Well, I want to start with a little bit of uh, feedback from our last episode. Two weeks ago, we talked about that four-episode true crime series from Reply All called On the Inside. I talked to Shruti Penimanini, the reporter who uh, produced those episodes. We've gotten a little bit of pushback on our glowing reviews of that series. And I wanted to run it by you guys and see what you think. Now, I've heard from several people, including one of my coworkers, a radio producer that I really respect, a couple of listeners via email, and also a Reddit user whose handle is now in a minute, who posed this same question very succinctly. So the question is, I just listened to your June 11th podcast and I wanted to ask whether you all think it's fair to judge the response of someone who has communication issues in the same way as other people are judged. I thought the autistic angle was a significant part of this investigation, but then all it took was a single response for all of you to think, all right, that nailed it. So I guess the question is, by judging Paul Madrowski by his reaction to Shruthi, Did we become as guilty as the judge and jury of judging him based on affect? What do you think, Kevin? Well,
0: I think it's a a fair question. However, I'm going to say that I don't think that my take on that was wrong. I don't think it was the way he communicated The uh, response, I think it was what prompted his response. Mm -hmm. And it was also a couple of series of things. I mean, we we, we understand from a clinician that he has difficulty in grasping the idea of what to get out of a a fake story. And we hear him say, you know, very weakly defend himself from some very, what seemed like some very obvious lies. I think if we didn't hear that, I think it would be harder to believe. But, but, it wasn't just because the reaction was mean and scary, mm-hmm. which it was. Yeah. If she had said, did you kill, you know, and re- he responded that way, it might be one thing. The mystery of the King Diamond thing and what that might mean and his reaction to that, mm-hmm. I think, was very intriguing.
2: What do you think, Toby? Do you think there's validity in this criticism that we, and also Shrufi Pennimanini, kind of did the same thing that the judge did and the jury did in that case, which was to you know sort of past judgment as to someone's guilt based on one thing that they said and and the affect around it.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's that's it's kind of a fair criticism. I don't think it necessarily changes my mind about that whole thing. I mean I think there's a little bit of difference between reading an affect as meaning one thing when in fact it it means another and another to have, you know, specific Response. I guess specific is not exactly the word, but having a very strong response, and it wasn't like a confusion about whether he was impassive or or just sort of having an affect. But it was he responded to a question or a stimulus in a certain way and it was more the particulars of it rather than sort of the way uh, he expressed himself Mm -hmm. that I I think was was sort of damning. So I think it's a valid criticism, but at the same time, I don't necessarily think that changes my mind about the sort of basics.
3: You know, last week you asked me if I felt sympathetic, and I didn't feel as sympathetic. And then after we taped last week, I felt kind of bad about that, and I started thinking about it. And really what it is, is if I was listening to Paul or Bo Bergdahl, And not knowing of their diagnosis and just listening to them on a gut level, I think that Paul definitely came across in such a way that regardless of what his diagnosis was, just the way he presented, he had this kind of chip on his shoulder in this attitude that really made me not feel as sympathetic as I would have, I think. So it's, um, gut. it's more gut for you. Yeah, it was more of a gut for me. And And then I, but I did feel bad afterwards last week. I thought, you know, even before I knew other people were sort of critiquing this, because it was like, you know, I know this guy has something going on, but it's just... Listening to him on a gut level and the way he presents, it's hard for me to get past that.
2: Now, Laura, I just want to ask you this quick follow up, because the same person that I work with who sort of gave that criticism and he actually thought Shruti's storytelling was a little bit exploitative. And the way that he explained that to me, in addition to this, you know, reacting to Paul's reaction thing was she set out to tell a story about a guy who was convicted of a crime. And then it ends with her believing the guy actually committed the crime that he was convicted of doing. So... What was the story that she was telling? And what I guess what I want to ask you is, because, you know, you're working as a journalist right now. Do you sometimes tell stories where the ending is not what you thought it would be, but just is kind of what it is and it, what everyone else thinks that it is?
3: I don't know. That's kind of a tough question, because right now I'm doing a lot of feature writing, human interest stories, and those all end in, in you know, more a uh, happy manner. Dog in uh, the sidecar kind of thing? Yeah, like the dog in the <laughs> sidecar. <laughs> but there's definitely stories where you think you know you're going into something and and you know and I did a story just last week and I thought I understand this completely and this makes a lot of sense and then after I did all the research and talked to all the people involved, I was like, uh, might not have been as big a story as I thought it was. So I can see it from that angle. I hate when that happens. <laughs> uh, and then you're like, why did I talk this up so
2: much? Right, right. I hate it when you think that there's there there. And there's there yes. There. That's the worst feeling in the entire world when you're working in the newsroom. So yeah. all right, well, I want to move on to another subject of some of our past episodes. And that is, of course, the Adnan Syed case. His story has been all over a bunch of podcasts for the last year and a half, including this one. But last week, it finally, finally got its own sensational TV true crime treatment with Investigation Discovery's one hour special called Idnan Syed, Innocent or Guilty. Or guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't not use that voice when I talk about shows. I've been on many shows in Investigation Discovery, as you know, but I cannot use that voice because that's the voice they use. So, Kevin, uh, is it too late for this kind of show?
0: Well, uh, well, they're pretty late to the party, but you definitely can see they're trying to jump on. The serial bandwagon. A lot of, look, there are a lot of shows that are derivative of serial and that were spawned out of serial, ours included. And there were others that were inspired by the serial style of storytelling. What has been on TV about serial is serial and the sensation. No one has really tackled the Adan case. And so this is sort of the first time it's been there. And I think it's for that audience. That hasn't listened to the podcast at all,
2: Toby. I don't know how much you know of these shows you watch on Investigation Discovery, but I want to talk a little, with you a little bit about the style of this show. Give me let's, some. Let's of your not thoughts. talk
1: for too long because I, I haven't seen it.
2: Oh, <laughs> you haven't seen it?
1: Well, I was gonna. I was like, maybe I'll watch it, and then you guys were kind of cranking on it, <laughs> and so. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go down to the dock and catch some rays. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, Laura, well, let's go to you then. What did you think of the style of it and um, how it was put together?
3: There was a lot of weird stuff going on. I'm sorry. Uh, so, you know, first of all, one of the things that I found really odd is when they would have the reenactors somewhat fuzzy and kind of blurred, but then they would have tape of mm-hmm. the real people talking like Christiana, uh Gutierrez. That was a little odd. I also, there was something, I just felt like the flow was kind of off with the setup of the guy who was doing the interviews. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just felt choppy to me. And it, it was it was pretty cheesy, I thought. You know, I'll tell you what I
2: think every time I watch one of these shows, but especially when I watch one about a case that I know, like one of our books. And now then now this case is the format of all of these shows. There is a huge rush at the beginning to like pack in a bunch of detail. Right. And then they sort of take a lot of time in the middle where they slow down and they sort of, I guess, think. You know the audience is really hooked now, so let's sort of slow down. Is in like the reenactments and in some of the two ways, like with the, you know, quote unquote experts. Now, on Idnan's side, there there was Justin Brown, like his actual lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, there was I don't know, a former prosecutor from Texas or something like that, yeah. that. Who was who was the one? Basically, it didn't seem like he was, he wasn't involved in the case in any way.
0: No, but he needed. They needed someone to represent the side of the prosecution.
2: Did you think they did a good job of that in this particular crime story, Kevin?
0: But balancing it or, <laughs> yes, you know, I, yes. well, I mean, I think you do what you, you can. I mean, you know, I've certainly got pulled in do a couple of investigation ID appearances because they needed... A narrator and it was for a story that I, I hadn't covered as a reporter I hadn't written about but they gave me the research I looked into it and I gave my commentary and so that's you know kind of what they did I don't, I don't think that they found a schlub I thought they found a pretty good prosecutor who had some good points and wasn't just gonna go well yeah maybe well, maybe the defense is right you know they weren't gonna be served by somebody who was just gonna be like yeah well I, I guess Well, let's
2: so. think about who typically plays the devil's advocate in these in these particular shows usually it's somebody from the victim's family, Family who they clearly didn't have access to, mm-hmm. or it's somebody from the prosecution team or a cop who they clearly didn't have access to. I mean, the case is still the being devil's advocate is
0: usually the the defense side on investigation discovery. That's the one big thing, right? Is usually it's the stories are this is the guy we caught and how we put him in jail. Right. It's not guilty or innocent. That usually is not the question that is posed to the audience on Investigation Discovery.
2: Well, the thing that I think that's interesting, and Toby, here's where you can weigh in, even though you totally failed to do your homework and watch this show so we can be on this podcast with us. Um, But let's talk about Serial Season 1. Who played... The devil's advocate, Adnan, is probably guilty role in Serial Season 1. I mean, was it Jay by proxy? Was it Sarah Koenig talking about police stuff? I mean, can you think of there being like an antagonist to Adnan's side of the story in that podcast? Was there really one?
1: Yeah, I don't think so, really. I mean, the the voices that were sort of in opposition to Adnan were, I kind of felt, were sort of distanced by Sarah. You know, it was police who uh, were kind of set up to be people you didn't trust very much. And then her producer, whose name I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember. Um, Dana? She, Dana, yeah. She, at the end, you know, kind of made her little pitch for him being guilty, but it wasn't a consistent voice. I mean, I, I think that's one of the conceivable criticisms of, of Serial One. And certainly on Reddit, I think people feel that way.
2: So, Laura, you know, when you look at these investigation discovery shows and then also people who listen to podcasts and read true crime books or delve into a case that they're interested in... Do you see a division between sort of the investigation discovery consumer audience, you know, versus the audience that will invest in a 12 hour long storytelling arc about a true crime story?
3: Well, I think so. I think that the investigation discovery shows are pretty superficial in terms of getting into the nitty gritty of the cases. I mean, they certainly delve into the cases and the details, but, you know, they've only got an hour. And I think we've talked about before a lot of times, you know, when my case was on that show and I I was on, They put things out of order. They definitely, I think it's more geared towards making it a story for TV sometimes than necessarily sticking to like all the accurate facts from a case. You know, I think they gear it more towards the audience that's watching for an hour and maybe isn't going to follow up. And I was thinking with this one, it definitely would have been appealing to people who maybe didn't know about the case because in terms of those of us that have paid attention, there really was no new information. But I don't think it was told in such a compelling way that if I didn't know about the case and watch this, that I would then go out and start looking into Adnan's case.
0: Well, you know, those are three different audiences that don't completely overlap. Now, we hear it a lot with, you know, people who contact us on Twitter. They love our podcast and they want another True crime recommendation, whether it's a book or a documentary. But generally speaking, the audience that are the ID addicts, the ones that watch the TV shows, are not necessarily the audience that buys the books in the stores and it's not the audience that listens to the podcasts. And we, we know this because we're playing in all three of these fields. And right. there is some overlap. And we love those people who do, but a lot of them don't. Right. For those of us who have listened to Serial, you don't get anything out of this show. Because it's everything that you've already heard. Well,
2: you get to see Saad and Bob. You and get some. Vi- you <laughs> see what they look like. <laughs> you get to see some of the
0: visuals that you hadn't before, right? You know, some crime scene a stuff. A photo of and Christina I, Gutierrez exactly. with
2: lipstick on her chin.
0: But you don't learn anything new. This right. is really for the person who heard. I heard there was something about cereal. I wonder what that was about. Here it is, and then not get an hour. It's forty-two minutes because of commercials. Right. So twelve hours of cereal, a million hours of undisclosed, and all the other you know shows that went super deep. There's nothing there for you if you've already followed Serial.
2: I guess that's sort of my problem with these shows. Aside from the inaccuracies, which I see more often, obviously, when we've been on the shows and they just, you know, fudge a bunch of stuff to make it fit. That's just something they Mm -hmm. have to do. And obviously with this case, I knew a lot about it. So there's a lot of stuff that was fudged. The sort of rush storytelling, the super cheesy reenactments. I think my biggest issue is that they never ever uncover anything new. The revelations, I'm doing air quotes right now, which our audience can't see. In this episode, the revelations, they they quoted, they said, you know, this amazing piece of evidence found by Colin Miller podcast. And this other piece of evidence uncovered by Susan Simpson, you know, is this the smoking gun, this cover sheet? They just sort of amalgamated stuff that was out there. And some, you know, producer who probably followed Reddit and sort of listened to Undisclosed or whatever, they sort of put a show together based on that stuff. And frankly, I don't know, it seems like a lot of money to spend to not do a single new thing. Am I wrong? Laura, what do you think?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think they're not doing a single new thing, but they are picking up a new audience that maybe isn't going to listen to this in a podcast, like Kevin was saying. And now it's out there. Now there is the TV show. And like we we saw what the people looked like. And, you know, there are people like that probably didn't know about this that maybe have now some understanding of why the rest of us were so obsessed.
2: And what did you think of the actor who was reenacting Adnan Sayed, Laura?
3: I loved the little scenes outside of the high school when they were filming them from the back holding hands. Yeah. That was one of my favorites. They're going
0: around in circles all blurry.
3: (laughs) All right. So Toby, you didn't watch this show.
0: Correct.
2: Based on what we've talked about, uh, what grade are you going to give it? <laughs> We're going to just go ahead and rate it right now, and I'd like to hear what grade you are going to give the investigation, discovery, treatment, Adnan Syed, innocent or guilty, letter grade, and just briefly explain why, please.
1: Like I would have given it an F even <laughs> if I hadn't heard anything.
2: <laughs> why is that?
1: I mean, I just you know why? Why? <laughs> unless, why not? unless there's unless there's something new, like why do it? I, I don't. There's been so much so much time and effort and all this stuff put into this case to like kind of give somebody a synopsis on television. Just, yeah, I don't, I don't get it.
2: What about you, Laura? You actually did watch the show. I'd like to hear the letter grade that you're going to give it. And with a brief explanation, why please?
3: Oof. Um, I'm going to give it a C (laughs) Uh, because I'm, I'm trying to be kind. You know, I think that if they were going to do this, they should have done it like a year ago. That's my, um, feedback. So what brings it up to a C for you? Well, I did like to see what some of the people looked like. I'm
1: trying to be kind. It <laughs> it's because you're C too minus. nice to fail them, Laura. Come on.
3: <laughs> I'm too
2: nice. <laughs> I'm going to go C minus. Um right. my grade. Um, I'm going to go uh, D minus. And it would have been an F were it not for the amazing photograph of Christina Gutierrez with lipstick on her chin. Kevin, what letter grade um, <laughs> would you like to give Investigation Discoveries non Sayed Innocent. Or guilty.
0: Did you notice that like, in the middle of it, they were like, tweet now, or text now, <laughs> uh, is is Adnan Zayed innocent or guilty? It was yeah. like, you're 10 minutes into it. <laughs> um, I'm going to give it a C+. Like, as, as far as a TV show goes, it, it wasn't bad. You know, It was the closest to a uh, 2020 Dateline NBC investigation, as investigation discovery programs usually are. But this wasn't meant for me or you or almost anybody who's listening to our podcast because it's stuff we already know. Mm-hmm. We already want turned this on knowing more about lividity and time cards and cell phone tower fax cover sheets than anybody else. So it didn't really serve us anything. I didn't really learn anything about it, which is why I like the Great Courses Plus video <laughs> learning service, because I can learn about anything and everything with my unlimited access to the Great Courses <laughs> lecture series on hundreds of topics taught by top professors like, and I just finished this up, this was great, Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals, taught by my new favorite professor, Elizabeth Murray. When you hear like it's a, a, a lecture... The video isn't of like somebody in a lecture hall with a chalkboard, you know, talking. It's to not the, finger waggy. No, you didn't get just dropped at the, you know, UMass. It's great, and you know, it takes place on a TV set and a lot of great visuals, and it's very accessible. Not only did I get to learn about really interesting cases, like really going into the Jack the Ripper case or the Tylenol poisonings from the 1980s, but I also have access to so many other great lectures that you can also have too with the Great Courses Plus. So if you act now, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream these hundreds of courses, including forensic history, and that's a $235 value. You can stream it for free. Free? Free. When you go to com slash crime. So start watching today. That's com slash crime. Slash crime crime. crime. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just really want to just strangle you myself.
3: Oh, nice. And Toby have a spinoff
2: podcast. We're not going to get any like negative letters about that.
0: <laughs> oh. I'm starting to regret that one. Maybe we can clip that one up. That's kind of harsh on UMass, too.
2: That's going to be harsh on UMass. First Maura Murray, now this.
1: Damn. <laughs> it's not like you get dropped in at UMass. Yeah. Like <laughs> It's not that kind of bullshit.
2: <laughs> Suni Oneonta. <laughs> Do you have anything hey. else you want <laughs> to talk about, Kevin?
0: Hey, you know, I want to let you know that our podcast today is being sponsored by a podcast. Wait
2: a minute. Our podcast about a podcast is being sponsored by a podcast?
0: Exactly. Wow. It's Podcastception. There's a new podcast that you might enjoy. It's called Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. It's very much like old-time radio. I like OTR. Old-time radio. And they're taking old cold cases and they're dramatizing them. So they're looking at the real case. So they use sound effects and music and acting and they really sort of reconstruct What these cases were they use the facts that were they're all real and it's uh, you know a whole new take because you're really immersed in the story and you get a chance to kind of do the investigation in the end they'll let you know who they think did it. I've been listening to their first couple of podcasts which focuses on the unsolved case of the axe man of New Orleans. And I will say I think that there were maybe at least two dozen cantaloupes that were killed (laughs) in the Foley effect of Foley, huh? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. the you know, the axe chopping through a a head. Uh, there was quite a lot of produce uh, was sacrificed for that. So what you could do if you wanna listen to Unsolved Murders is visit parcast.com slash unsolved and start listening now. That's Parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unsolved or listen now, visit iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, any other place you can get your podcast. Search Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories to listen now. Again, that's Unsolved Murders, True True Crime Crime Stories.
2: Stories. All right. Speaking of Google Play, I forgot to tell you guys, we are on Google Play. So for our listeners who would rather listen to us there. We're there. I figured it out. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Kind of a big deal. Is that what you were
0: doing last weekend?
2: (laughs) Our week off. I spent the whole week trying to figure out how to get our podcast on I'm close. I'm close. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm not quite ready to give up our analysis of Kevin's ad reading. So, uh, Toby, how do you think he did this week on the ads?
1: Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, it, it was fine. It was fine. My, right? my my dad got his doctorate from UMass, so I'm going to harbor that. For <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> a Laura. doctorate from UMass? Yeah. They, Isn't that where Bill those. Cosby
2: got his doctorate yeah, as well?
1: <laughs> yeah, Bill Cosby and Gordon from uh, Sesame Street was nice, there at the same nice. time. Now too.
2: That is a good endorsement. Laura, how do you think Kevin did on the ads this week?
3: Good. You know, I like the axe story because it reminded me of this guy I interviewed once who had 400 axe heads that he had collected. Uh And he showed me how he chopped off his thumb when he was like 10 years old with one of them. So good job, Kevin. Well, Kevin, I thought you did pretty well in the ads too, but I'd much rather talk about what we're all here to
2: talk about, okay? Okay. Let's not talk about TV shows that Toby didn't watch. Let's talk about a TV show that we all watched. And that, of course, is ESPN's five part documentary on the life and crimes of O.J. Simpson called Made in America. It covered his upbringing, his football career, the murders, the trial, and the football star's life of infamy. After his conviction, the critics of this documentary loved it. It's been written that it is the most definitive look at a case ever. The greatest programming ever created by ESPN and the movie's creators have been showing the eight hour version of the documentary in theaters in order to enter it into film festivals like Tribeca Sundance and maybe even next year's Academy Awards. So first impressions before this is short. No, not as a short. (laughs) Not as a short. It's definitely a commitment. First impressions of this documentary the first episode, it's very ambitious, it's very big, but caveat the first episode is all about football, which I know you loved, and I'm guessing Toby loved. Laura, so I'm gonna go to you. The first hour and a half of this series was all about football. When we were first getting into this story, what did you think?
3: Well, I was struggling a little bit at first, I'll be honest, because I, as you know, I am not a football watcher, I am not a sports fan. but for me, it definitely put more in context because I really, you know, like I, said, I, I have no idea about sports. So to me, this really put in context the significance of O.J. Simpson's sort of role in football history, and then that later, you know, when he is charged with murder, why that was such a big deal, looking back at where he started. So for me, it kind of gave me some groundwork that I really had no knowledge of before I started.
2: Toby, how did you think of the way that this series was kicked off? But no fun
1: intent. Kicked off. So I think, you know, I'm going to get confused, like whether things happen in the first or second episode, but I think for me being kind of familiar with all this football stuff, you know, the place that USC was in the sixties when he was there and how both it and he were kind of insulated from sort of larger social movements that were going on at the time I thought that was interesting. It was something I didn't know, and I thought it kind of set the stage well for what was to come later.
0: I was a little nervous after episode one, after we told everybody to invest in this and thinking, oh, my goodness, everyone's just going to be like, is this all about football? However, it wasn't all about football. It was his football career. It was also a a look at the history of Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Police Department. This is all prologue to the bigger, more compelling story. You probably could just pick it up at episode three and get through, but I think you miss a lot.
2: I do too. It's funny because I was the one sort of being like, all right. I get it. Like, he's, he was a great football player. Which, I get which, it. which
0: was easy it, to
2: forget. It was easy to forget because that wasn't, when I was, you know, certainly aware of, you know, what was going on in the world. I mean, I knew O.J. Simpson as the Hertz guy, as right. the former great. I mean, growing up in the, you know, the 80s, I knew him as the guy who was famous for being a football player, but that's not how but I knew him. that's why
0: O.J. is the trial of the century and Robert Blake is not the trial of the century. Right. Or Phil Spector is not the trial of the century. It's because it's O.J. Simpson.
2: Well, I do want to talk about some of the stuff we learned in those first couple of episodes, Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, depending on which version of it you watched, you can split up episode one or two. So we'll just call it like the opening act of this series. Toby mentioned we learned about how O.J. was... Divorced in a lot of ways from the civil rights movement, not just because of where he was, but because of who he chose to be when he became a star athlete at college. We heard about his upbringing. We heard that his father was gay, which is something that I had never heard yeah. before and never knew before. And we got a real look at his foundational relationships, some of which he would then keep throughout the entire span of the story. Kevin, were there revelations in that part of the series that you found as interesting as I did in terms of like what you learned about a case and a person that you hadn't known
1: before?
0: Yeah, the idea that O.J.'s dad was gay, although I don't know why it would be relevant that we would have known that before. I think when we're looking at sort of the arc of his life, that was interesting because it came up later on when there was a, an argument with Nicole having to do with uh, her son, Sitting their next son to a gay yeah, person, yeah yeah, also the fact that OJ had a, a young child to drown, so he lost a, a child uh, a young child. And then when we get to Nicole, the idea that she was so young when they started dating, he was still married. But also that the abuse seemed to start immediately. Right. Like from the first date, she came back all bruised.
2: So, Toby, what did you think of that opening act about, you know, the history of sort of the, you know, the relationship that O.J. had with being black, the relationship that, you know, the Los Angeles police had, you know, with the people of Los Angeles and the way that city changed? And, you know, what did you think of this setup, this sort of big cultural setup and the things that we learned about O.J. Simpson that we had never heard before?
1: What I thought was like most interesting just in general was how O.J. was almost kind of a vessel. People kind of put on him what they wanted to, and he was perfectly happy to kind of go along with it. So there's this little thing where they're cutting back and forth between Bobby Kennedy announcing to a crowd that MLK Jr. had been killed, and then they're cutting to O.J. being sort of the straight man for Bob Hope at a USC event that's like absolutely all like these clean-cut white people, and then O.J. and his wife, and he's the big star. And then they also show this, like, summit of prominent African-American athletes, like Jim Brown and and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Russell meeting with Muhammad Ali after he declined to um, go to Vietnam, and then talking to O.J. afterwards, and O.J., Saying that that wasn't really his thing. He doesn't he doesn't think of himself as, you know, black. He thinks of himself as a man and he, he's kind of beyond that. So I kind of felt that they set it up in a pretty interesting way that OJ, he was able to kind of skate around these sort of historical issues that African-Americans had had, A, in general, and then B, in Los Angeles. Because he goes to USC, which is sort of a a power center in Los Angeles, is largely white, and he becomes identified with that. And he's a hero there. So he becomes sort of the hero of powerful white Los Angeles.
2: You know, I actually – I want to just beg to differ with you on one point, and then I want to see what Laura thinks about this, is that, you know, you – kind of drew the line and said that OJ became you know sort of a white person's hero and that you know because he was at USC and that's why he divorced himself from the the black issues but you know we hear anecdotes throughout this series about OJ before he went to USC we hear them from what's his friend's name Kevin who testified against him at the trial eventually
0: ship run ship the cop
2: so we we hear this anecdote about how in high school OJ just decided like it was okay to just start going out with Al Callings girlfriend like right in front of all the friends and
0: that's his Best friend.
2: And that's his best friend. He always behaved as if the rules and the rules did not apply to him. Which is why I think
0: race, he doesn't think race applies to him. I
2: was going to ask Laura this question. Uh, Laura, did, did you think that USC was pivotal for OJ, or do you think there's just something about just the way that he was? before we meet him in this series, before we see him on the football field?
3: I think there is something about the way he was because he's always spinning things and he always wants to be the person that everybody likes, even at the end or at one point. He's like, I'm just Juice, just remember me as Juice. But, you know, what I was thinking as I was watching this part was, you know, knowing what was coming in the trial, I saw a lot of irony here because it seemed to me Not that he didn't think that the rules applied to him with regard to race. I almost felt like, and I I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but I almost felt like sometimes he was identifying more as a white person. Oh yeah.
2: And I I think he was. I don't think that that sounds like you know, right. I think he it, would he would say that.
3: And it was like he was always on. What did he say? I'm not black, I'm OJ. Right, right. Um it, it just struck me this was just such an ironic setup to see how distanced he was from the black community in terms of identifying And then knowing that that really became the crux of his trial, I think really added a deep layer of context for me.
0: And whereas it's important to see O.J. sort of, as you say, distance himself from the black community because later he would become the patron saint of blackness, it's also funny that white America isn't really accepting him either. Whenever one of these sportscasters or something gives him an award and they say something like, you're such a well-behaved man.
2: Yeah, you're so well-spoken.
0: Well-spoken. There is just the tinge of... You're not one of those uppity black people who are, have been making problems for everybody. Everybody said, well, you just uh, all of the white country club people who are right. like.
2: Some of whom gave interviews and were still sounding pretty racist in well, present I, day I, talking well, about OJ. I,
0: I think there, I don't want to pick nits, but, you, you know, I think more sort of ignorant. I wouldn't necessarily say the guy from Hertz is is racist. However, the way he seems to express himself about didn't you know seem like a he didn't scary. have black features. Yeah, yeah I think that's what <laughs> he he's scare saying. Scare people. <laughs> yeah, you, you know it's race is so interwoven to the whole story. But it's interesting because he never embraced the black community until he needed to.
2: I want to talk about now we get to the part of the story, uh, you know, as we move past, you know, the great fame, he transitions into acting, and there's that very interesting part where that guy who directed him in that horrible movie and talked about how you know, he had to like put the prosthetics on his face. Capricorn One. Yeah, yeah, to to get him to be able to like be realistic in a scene, and that, that guy ends up being like an ally of his later, which was I think very, very interesting to watch the people in this documentary give interviews and then turn, and then describe when they turned and became his friend, when they didn't. It's very, very interesting. But we do hear a lot about that early relationship with Nicole, which I think as somebody who thought they knew a lot about the case, I knew nothing about Nicole Brown meeting OJ being 18. I remember hearing that she was young, but seeing those photos of her at 18, hearing that story that her friend tells of her coming home from her first date with OJ, where they had sex and he was very rough and her jeans were ripped. And she clearly had been Really assaulted on their first date, Laura. What did you think of these details that we heard about the beginnings of that relationship?
3: Well, it just seemed like it was a train wreck from the start. That you you couldn't really stop, and you knew what was going to happen. It just seemed so obvious to everybody except her. It it really seemed like there were so many warning signs that this was not a good situation. And it's like one of those things as you're watching it, you're like, at this point she's going to back out, or at this point something's going to happen, or somebody's going to pick up on this. But it just kept going and gathering steam. Well, how much of the fact
2: of that do you think Toby was attributable to the fact that he was O.J.?
1: that she was sticking around with
2: him? Yeah, or just the fact that nobody could see it. Like, nobody was able to sort of say, you know, this is a bad situation. It seems like her parents were very invested in the relationship. and
0: Financially, too?
2: Well, that's sort of intimated in this show as well. They don't Mm -hmm. dig too deeply into it, but it seems like everybody's really sort of invested in her being with him and able to really gloss over a lot of the uglier details. You hear the descriptions of their wedding as being like the perfect wedding, the golden couple. And yet, a lot of these same people had had conversations with her about things that he had done to her do you think he was particularly charismatic or do you think that was just the fact that he was oj who we've now seen in a couple of hours become the biggest star on the planet
1: well i mean i think it's both right i mean they at the end when he's interviewing with that that woman on that radio station she's like damn it oj you're just so charming i can't hate you um, it's
2: wendy williams right yeah yeah, oh, yeah. that. Who that I yeah i no think idea. that's who that was yeah
1: I mean, I think it comes across pretty strongly that people are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt all the time. So when police confront him during a d- domestic violence thing, it's like O.J. It's like, oh, no, it's cool. It's cool. You know, it's like, oh, it's, it's the juice. You know, we'll, we'll give him a break. And they talk about how I guess it was a New Year's Eve where if it hadn't been him, they would have handled things differently. Mm-hmm. And things might have turned out differently. You
0: wonder if O.J. Simpson is a nice guy with demons or a horrible person who's been wearing a mask. In in many ways, OJ's personality is no different than most batterers. You know, that they have a... Charisma. Th- very charismatic yep. and, and able to talk their victim back into staying. We see lots and lots of reasons why... Nicole would not want to leave O.J. They have children together. They've built a life together. Well, she loved him. She loved him. Right. And he would apologize and it would be a, the grand gesture. They were the perfect. You know, it's all the things that are not unique to O.J., not unique to celebrities. It's just you have a guy who is super charming, does not hear no often, is competitive and physically strong and aggressive, and strangers really want to be around him, and he's enabled by society.
2: And he's very good at retelling the story to make it sound like he was not at fault. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that, to me, is the signal of batterers, and that is why so many abusers—you don't have to be a batterer to be an abuser. This is why so many abusers target young Women, younger partners, because those partners have not lived long enough to know that this kind of comment, for example, is abusive, that it's if you can't have the same conversation you would have with your partner, if you can't have it in front of friends it's probably not a conversation you should be having. Like, you know, younger people just don't know that. And, you know, I thought that stuff really, I don't know, I sort of lean toward the horrible,
3: damaged person who's really good at playing nice. I mean, that's kind of where I land after watching that. What do you think, Laura? Something I thought was really effective in showing these two sides was the use of the 911 calls, which I can't believe they still have these. They must be in evidence or something. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. When you actually heard his voice and heard her voice on these calls, It really showed the other side of him in a way that you could really see how good he was at playing both sides and turning it on and off and
0: and just how out of control he was. And not a soundbite, a lengthy excerpt. Mm-hmm. So you get the full tension and you, the full story, not just the little, I think you know who he is, it's O.J., which was the sound bite that I've heard a million times right, when they right. play that, but you don't get the rest of it. You don't he- hear her
2: hiding in the room, her hiding
0: and him yelling in the background and, and all of that. And
2: and her, how weary she sounds. She sounds yeah. like she's been beaten over and over and over again. I feel like well, that stuff felt like it was missing from the There was the one trial. person
0: who said I knew her and says she didn't sound drunk. Mm-hmm. She sounded scared.
2: Right. Well, you know, I do want to talk about this because we just watched the People versus O.J. Simpson, this mm-hmm. dramatized version of the O.J. Simpson trial, and now we're watching a documentary which was presented completely differently. But I think there were a lot of overlapping, uh, comparable elements, and then a lot of things that were really, really different. One of the things that you know stuck out to me, for instance, was that Marsha Clark was in this, <laughs> the real Marsha Clark, and that she would point to things in the trial where she would say when he did that talking about Christopher Darden you know I couldn't believe it and then you would see her face in the courtroom at that moment and she would be like rolling her eyes and it was like she was obviously so angry you know I'm curious Toby what did you think about you know so close together watching this dramatized version of the case in trial and then seeing this really really thorough documentary bringing so much more detail and you know so much more context did it feel a little bit surreal to you like it did to me
1: yeah, a little bit. It it showed how much the People versus O.J. Simpson, it was a drama, mm-hmm. you know. It was it was a lot about these personal relationships. There were certain things that seemed sort of clever, especially about Johnny Cochran. That seemed kind of clever in the People versus O.J. that seemed a little more troubling in the documentary. Johnny Cochran comes off as being a very complicated character in the documentary in a way that I don't think he did in People vs. O.J., and and I thought he was an interesting character in that, but the picture that's painted in the documentary I thought was very conflicting. So I thought there's a lot of little things like that, little nuances, and in some cases not so little. It would have been interesting if they'd come out in the opposite order, Mm -hmm. where you'd watch the documentary first and then watch The People vs. O.J. And I I think my opinion of The People vs. O.J. probably would not have been quite as positive. I
2: completely agree with you, actually.
1: Oh, I, I
0: I like that. We saw the docudrama first. Oh, so
2: do I. No, but I don't think I would have enjoyed the docudrama as much if I had seen this first. Because for example, and Mm. I want to ask Laura about this, because I know that you've been thinking about Chris Darden, right? Yeah. Because we saw Chris Darden portrayed in The People vs. O.J. uh, fictionally.
0: Sterling Brown.
2: Yeah, and his performance was great, but he was also such an interesting, strong character stuck in an impossible situation. And then we see this documentary in which jurors are saying he's weak. He's only there because he's black. And, you know, of course, the real Chris Darden was not giving an interview for this documentary. We did see Chris Darden in the courtroom. You know, what did you think of that juxtaposition between the fictionalized Chris Darden
3: that we, like, were rooting for and this this guy that we are shown in this documentary? The first thing that struck me was how, you know, when I'm looking at who is playing certain people in the People versus O.J. versus the documentary, and and I felt like the Chris Darden character was, like, Dead on it was that was such a perfect match, like the mannerisms and everything to watch it. It was a little bit eerie, almost thinking you know how much did he study these old videos when he was getting into character, but I felt like there was a different side of Chris Darden presented in this, although the part that really struck me was after the verdict when he just broke down, and I don't feel like. In the People versus OJ, we saw it to the extent that we saw it when we saw the actual news clip from that press conference, and that part really stuck out to me. They
0: did have that uh, scene in the documentary.
3: Yeah. But yeah. It wasn't as I don't f I feel like he was a lot more emotional in the actual real life one.
2: Right, right. Mm-hmm. We we also got more of the Goldmans, I think, in the documentary. Yeah. And I I still don't think maybe I would have liked to see them show up a little earlier maybe, but of course they showed up approximately when they should have, which was when their son became a yeah, victim, right, right. Kevin, what did you think of the showing of all of the crime scene photos in this documentary?
0: Wow. That was something that we hadn't seen before. I've
2: never seen that, before.
0: And, uh, you know, certainly not as graphic.
2: We've seen the one with, with Nicole lying on the sidewalk with her hair over and just all the blood around. But this documentary showed the knife wounds. It showed what Ron Goldman looked like.
0: The incision... On the throat where you could yeah. see all the way to the vertebra.
2: Yep. Ugh. It's one thing to hear about it's another thing to see it. What did it, you think of their inclusion of those photos?
0: Brave. Mm-hmm. Um, controversial. Necessary. hmm Why um, did you
2: think it was necessary?
0: They keep setting up what the stakes are. Right. And why this is important. And again, if you have Nicole as an abstract character-
2: Which is how she was portrayed in the trial.
0: And to some extent in the docudrama, where she is just more or less- an obstacle or a challenge to overcome versus being a real person and the crime against her being very violent and personal. And to the extent of that, we think we understand it. But when you see it, it's different. Right. And I know you have. And I know, Laura, I know you've seen photos from crime scenes. And it's Mm -hmm. different. It's
2: very Mm -hmm. different.
0: It makes it very different to you. It does. Because it's it's almost historical. I remember the first time I saw the autopsy photos of JFK. Right. Which I don't think were supposed to be leaked. But you're like, wow. Uh, Human
2: being, flesh and bone.
0: Well, this is that side of that historical moment.
2: Well, yeah, that's the other thing, too, that it did for me, and I feel like during the trial and even in the aftermath of the trial, we've been given a lot of theories about Ron Goldman's being there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that was a big part of the defense strategy was to sort of paint Nicole as, you know, there was a lot of intimation that they were having an affair. There was a lot of this. The documentarians basically laid out an incredibly convincing case that Ron Goldman walked into Nicole Brown Simpson's murder. Yeah. They showed the defensive wounds. They showed them. They didn't just say he had defensive wounds on his hands. They showed them. And to me, it was very, very clear that he walked into that murder, that it was not like the two of them were attacked, like he walked in to this crime in progress. I mean, Laura, is that the way that you interpreted that section as well?
3: Yeah. And I was going to say what was really effective. I mean, the, the photos were really they were difficult to look at. But what was also effective was the way that they actually laid out the sequence of how this all happened and how whoever did this went back after. When they were already at that point likely bleeding out and, and pretty much dead and continued the attack, that part to me, I Dra- guess I yeah. didn't Drag realize a body over. how yeah. savage, how, how savage it was until I saw that. And when they described that the killing cage and they actually showed it. Right. That part to me was like, I felt like, oh, I could just feel the helplessness of that person in that situation.
0: Right. And, and you know where that shows up? That shows up about 300 minutes Into this documentary. They could
3: have opened with that, but they didn't.
0: They could have. No, I would give them a lot of credit for the way they paced and put things out and and changed up the timeline. I completely agree. I think it was perfectly done. You know, again, we're halfway. I think through their telling of the trial- we're like almost all the way through it before they really say this is what we think happened. But, and, but when they explain they it, show what you happened. Are, right before they show what happened, right. and, and you you already feel like you know everything from what they've already said, and then when they you realize they didn't give me this yet, they do a good job with sort of moving the cups around the table and um, so that everything comes out fresh.
2: You know, Toby, I want to talk to you about another character that I think we saw in a new way here than we saw during the trial, I think, and also now, Barry Sheck. We know Barry Sheck now as the Innocence Project guy, right?
0: hmm Right.
2: He's sort of like this hero of wrongful convictions who's like of the Innocence Project and is fighting on behalf of people who are wrongly convicted. And then we see him in the courtroom... Just knock out these evidentiary arguments. What did you think of that part of the
1: documentary? I thought the most interesting part of all that was, I think it's Marsha Clark, or it may be the guy with the beard who who's also on the prosecution team, saying that what he was saying he knew was bullshit. He was not accurately representing the science right. at the time. And then when they talk to him later and they're asking him, he hedges a hell of a lot about whether he thinks OJ was guilty or innocent, mm-hmm. so I don't think looking back on it, I would be surprised if he feels like that's one of his finest hours. Mm-hmm. I don't like the idea that you vilify defense lawyers. Mm-hmm. I don't, don't either. Two. I don't yeah.
2: either. Yeah, it's their job. Yeah,
1: I, I think I think I think that's I, I I don't buy that argument. His strategy was basically to confuse people about something that he must have known mm-hmm. was pretty telling. I think when you compare that to the work that he does as part of the Innocence Project, where he's he's doing the opposite, which is taking stuff that that seemed confused and, and showing what it actually shows, I think there's a big difference there. It seems like a lot of these guys, maybe this is what's kind of interesting about the whole O.J. thing, it's like a little microcosm of it, is that they act in ways that they didn't necessarily act in the rest of their careers, But just in this particular case, they changed that makes sense.
2: It, it does make sense. And I think one of the other things that we saw that was interesting, you know, obviously we have the verdict. We sort of saw what happened after the trial. I mean, there's so much to pack in here. We, we could probably talk about this series for hours. But I, yes. I, I do. So the, there was the trial. We obviously know what happened in the trial. We have access to the jurors in the trial. Kevin, was it surprising to you to hear that the jurors, rather than blaming OJ for being an abuser, blamed Nicole for staying in the relationship? I, yeah,
0: I was surprised.
2: Yeah, that was a very interesting detail. The other thing that we saw that was really interesting was post verdict was we got some insight into how OJ lived when he was in prison uh, during the trial and he made millions of dollars sitting there in that jail cell signing autographs. Laura, had you ever heard that before that he was actually making money while he was sitting in
3: prison? I had not heard that. I thought usually that was sort of something that the courts put the kibosh on. I don't know how. uh, Yeah, I hadn't heard about that. So we hear these very interesting insights from
2: his agent, Mike Gilbert, who explains how, you know, he helped O.J. earn money when he was sitting in jail. Mm -hmm. And then he helped him hide his assets during the civil case that the Goldman's brought against him. How he helped O.J. make the gloves not fit during the trial by telling him to not take his arthritis medication. Yeah, that was amazing. Even if it's not true, that was still an amazing piece of tape that they got that guy saying that. Was that that surprised you?
0: That's a revelation to me. I mean, I, I know Gilbert wrote a book, yeah, basically, you know, asking for forgiveness and trying to atone for everything that he did with helping OJ. But but that little fact, I mean, the glove not fitting is such a big part of the mythos of the story. The idea that it wasn't necessarily just him faking it and the latex gloves that he actually did stuff for weeks anticipating this was coming and to, to get his hands to swell up. Right. So they wouldn't fit. Right. So it wasn't just this happenstance. And it wasn't really just sort of Chris Darden just taking the Ble- bait. Blew it. Yeah, yeah, the spur of the moment thing that it was, in some ways, if, even if we were
1: only O.J. who knew it, he was waiting for it. The thing I thought about this, and this guy Gilbert comes across as being a fairly likable guy or at least a guy who has like sincere regrets. Is that at this point he's trying to help him get away with it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're doing something like that, it's not like, hey man, you know, you're innocent, it's going to work. You know, don't worry about it. It's all right. Stop taking your thing so that the gloves won't fit. He's like fessing up to some like pretty shady stuff.
2: Right. As did Ron Ship, OJ's friend, who then yes. testified against him in the trial, did the right thing, mm-hmm. said, I can't do this anymore and mm-hmm. was excoriated on and the stand. And OJ
1: OJ was like feeding him all this stuff. Absolutely. Was, yeah. He's like, oh, you had a blonde girl over there and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well,
0: you, you know, in a lot of ways, when you think of OJ, you just have to think about yourself and people that... You know, and when you hear that your friend broke up with her boyfriend, you automatically take her side, and when she starts saying the bad things about you, you, you're supportive. And then maybe it takes a while to hear some of the other things and you realize, well, maybe she is also responsible for this breakup or whatever. Super simplistic example. But that's the kind of way it was with OJ. These people loved OJ. Some depended on them for their business. Some were just lifelong friends. The perfect example is Kardashian, Mm -hmm. you know, and it takes a while for someone to finally just sort of like say, my goodness, I love this guy, but... He's maybe I, maybe I have been misreading all these signs. Right, right. And maybe Listen, he
1: actually did it. When I was working in D.C., I worked with a woman whose father had played on the bills with O.J. And, you know, the O.J. trial was, was going on. I, I was talking to her one day. and She's like, I talked to my dad a couple of days ago and we talked about O.J. I said, yes. And <laughs> she said, well, I asked him, I said, do you think he could have done it? And he said, "I wish I could tell you that I can't see it happening, but I totally can." Hmm. But the people who are closely involved in it—unless I missed it—I didn't see one person like standing up and saying he didn't do it. There's no way he could have done it. I
2: still believe in him. There's none of that. Right? Yeah, yeah. There,
1: there, there's nobody.
0: No, I think there were.
1: I mean, in the you're beginning, about- but not at the end. No,
2: at the end, even the filmmaker guy, even the Hertz guy, even you know Ron Ship. I mean, the His agents, childhood friend. Oh, the other one guy. I don't think that guy was a super. I don't think he was advocating for innocence. I think he was advocating for how he was wronged in the process. Before we move on to the denouement, which I really want to talk about, can we just talk about Mark Furman just for a minute? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Look,
0: you know, we watched the first episode. After the first episode dropped on ESPN, it was available on demand. Right. So when we watched the on demand version, it was uncensored. Right. So. When the whole thing about the tapes come up, we get the one soundbite of Marsha Clark going, "What the fuck, dude," <laughs> which is going to be my favorite moment.
2: I don't think we have to unpack Furman. I think we just like, each give a little free flow talk about like what we think about Furman and whether or not our feelings have changed. I mean, the fact that they had Furman in the present day, not being a commentator on Fox News, but talking about this, and they asked him yeah. questions about what he said. And then we also saw like his role in the case. I mean, what did you think of Furman's participation in this, Laura? What were your impressions of Furman? What do you think?
3: I have to tell you, I was really surprised. I actually made a note. You know, I would take occasional notes as I was watching this. And I was like, I can't believe that he's on here. (laughs) And then he's back. um, And he looks really old. But the part that struck me was at the end. Because I was like, why would he do this? Um, <laughs> was at the end. And I realized why he did it. He was trying for some sort of vindication for himself and what he perceived as him being wronged right. and how his life had been affected by this. And he did come across as fairly sincere when he was talking about, you know, do you know what my life was like before this case? Do you know what my life was like after this case at the end when he was getting really, really upset talking about this case and how it affected him. I think that was probably his reason for going on. But I was just amazed. And he was on a lot.
2: I was, too. And and as good a job as he did of saying, you know, before this, I was married. I was this. And then after it was this, I was just thinking like, yeah, before this, nobody knew you were a racist. Yeah. (laughs) And then after this. Everyone knows that you've done these like horrible racist things mm-hmm. and you have Hitler memorabilia in your house.
0: <laughs> well, that was in the documentary, the <laughs> docudrama. You idea. know
2: what? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's like one of my uh, kids came up with the hashtag just Furman things during this because it's just like the things that were coming out of his mouth. Even present day Furman just blew my mind. And like this is somebody in 2016 saying these things out loud. Toby, do you have any thoughts on, on Furman that you want to share before we move on? Nothing
1: more than I think he probably didn't feel like he was unusual within the L.A. Police Department so that when he was sort of singled out and you had Cochran comparing him to Hitler and and things like this, he probably found it kind of shocking because he's like, hey, man, that, you know, this is the culture. Right. It wasn't that I felt badly for him in any way, but he does come off as, you know, having some kind of self-reflection. Again, like I've got zero sympathy for the guy, but he came off as being maybe a little bit more self-aware than I would have expected.
2: You You know what he didn't say, though? He didn't say, I fucked up. He didn't say that. No. He didn't say, I did horrible things when I was younger. I lied. I said lots of racist stuff, and I totally fucked up by lying on the stand. He did not say that.
1: Every single one of those cops, they weren't taking a step back, man. Right. Every time anything came up that was at all critical of the police- they were pissed. Right. And they thought it wasn't fair and they couldn't believe the shit that they were having to put up with. And that to me was shocking. I mean, There were two guys, just one with a mustache. And, and I can't remember what the other guy looked like. And I was like, what the hell? I mean, what kind of bubble do you live in? that you don't get this on some level.
0: Maybe that was Tom Lang was the other detective. He looked like Grandpa Joe from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: he did. <laughs> well, oh, give slug words. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I really do want to move on to the denouement. Do you have any final thoughts about Furman, Kevin?
0: I thought it was interesting that, again, like first of all, when you listen to all these cops and they talk about the cases, yeah. they are very competent and sharp. And then when it gets to the well what happened with the squared away LAPD during this event and the Rodney King thing and and they were just the, it, it rang so hollow yeah, and yeah. um i thought that Furman's comment about Rodney King being it's like you know what have prevented that the chokehold Yeah. they hadn't taken away the chokehold <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> which there may be some truth to that but look what's happened with the, the chokehold but the chokehold is this not great this year right this yeah.
2: year What a tone-deaf thing to say right now. It was tone-deaf. Yeah, it
0: was very tone-deaf. And there was one commander who was very good, and he seemed to know... What the score was, and he's, you know, they said like after the Rodney King thing, he called and it. Says the LAPD's reputation is never going to be the same again. Right, and, and, it, and it hasn't. Well, the
2: reputation was never good for black people to begin with. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. which is so that squared away thing. Two, yeah. It may squared away to you, but not squared away to a whole community <laughs> in in that city. Right. All right. Well, I do want to move on because there is one huge storytelling thing that happened, and you know, before we wrap up this conversation, which is that there was a whole episode after the verdict, People versus O.J. Simpson, pretty much ended with the verdict. And that night of the verdict, there was a whole episode afterwards. Our and,
0: interest in O.J. Simpson ended after that verdict,
2: right? But like, there was an entire you know what could have easily been sort of a letdown piece of storytelling that that sort of chronicled the post-verdict O.J. Simpson lifestyle and life, and then the crime that he ended up committing that did end up sending him to prison. Laura, before you watch the final episode of Made in America, the O.J. Simpson story. Um, did you know any of the details
3: about why O.J. Simpson is in prison today? Uh, very superficial. I was just like, something happened in Las Vegas. He's in jail. I don't know. But he finally went to jail. And then I saw this whole thing. It was just like a clown show. All these people that he was involved in out there. I, I, it was I, I, I was like watching a slow train wreck again. What did you know about O.J.'s life after I, the
2: trial,
0: Kevin? I just knew he was in jail for trying to steal or steal back some of his own memorabilia. Knew nothing about any of the players, the names, how it happened. Certainly didn't follow the trial. I was surprised at how little I knew.
2: What did you think of that part of documentary, Toby? And more importantly, what did you think about O.J. Simpson's verdict for the crime that uh, he was accused of committing that ended up sending him to prison?
1: The whole thing is sorted, right? You know, he basically, once he realizes that his time of Hanging out with like wealthy guys at the golf club and stuff is over. it's just like unrestrained. id. It. it's like hanging out at at strip clubs and he becomes this Florida man. Crappy <laughs> I, music and and just where people are like, what are you doing? Like even people who are like OJ apologists are like, oh my god.
0: He so said half of if half of America thinks I'm a murderer. You know, what do they care if I'm banging girls two at a time?
3: That video, the, the rap video, was, I, I haven't really recovered from that. that
1: yeah, that was pretty classic. <laughs> yeah. um, but then the sentence that he gets, if you're taking it as it should be, which is out of context of other things, it seems crazy, right?
2: Yeah, but should it be out of context of other things? I mean, it is yeah. a different crime.
1: It's, it's a different crime. So, I yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, it's not up to that judge to be making things right. I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the kind of thing where you would put somebody away for years and years and years and years. So if you just take it as being just sort of a typical thing where you had a robbery with some guy who is partly getting back stuff that he has some kind of claim on. I don't really know the, they don't really go into the ins and outs of Of what his legal claim to this stuff was, but you can't go in and put a gun on somebody's head, and then they stole some of Pete Rose's stuff for God's sake, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know. But do you put a guy away for a decade? If twenty twenty years, like a
2: supermax or whatever, yeah. Laura, what did you think of the sentence?
3: Oh well, I thought it was pretty out of line for the situation. And I just wanted to say the guy that was, you know, the one who turned and testified, the one who had the hidden tape recorder, who he then sold that tape recorder information to TMZ for $150,000. And then he went and testified. I was like, this guy's credibility is not great right. and that's kind of like their star witness in this case right i thought this was very disproportionate i mean this was a really stupid thing i mean this act it was just like what were these people thinking you know was, you know what it
2: struck me as laura it's like i know that it's not okay to bust into a room with guns right and like do you i know that's not okay you sure but given the characters that we met it was almost like they were bullying him with guns. It wasn't even so much like an armed robbery where someone's life was threatened, as it was they were play acting, being like bad guys, being playing being bad guys, walking through a casino with all sorts of cameras on them. I mean, it certainly wasn't a well executed. It was a crime of buffoonery, and the judge was exacting revenge for the Nicole Brown Simpson's murder. And I'm not saying that I think that you know O. J. doesn't belong in prison. I'm saying that I don't think he belongs in prison to that extent for that.
0: I am glad the judge paused to take a sip of her soda. (laughs) Yeah,
2: soda. And walked (laughs) in smiling to the courtroom. Hello, everyone. It was bizarre. It was very, very bizarre. And I have to say this one thing: I was impressed. The reason this documentary impressed me so much was that I think a lot of cheesier, less well-done treatments of this story would have treated that final act as justice justice has been served and we did see the Goldman saying that they felt that way but the documentary did not take a side they just showed you what happened You know, you have the Goldman interview, but they didn't say anything. And so I walk away with my own opinion, which is a in today's day and age with true crime stories, a brave thing and a singular thing to do.
0: Right. The the, the thing was not that this was justice. It did show the tragic fall, the hero's fall that he got to the top of the mountain and then fell. Right. And it would show like how far he fell. You know, it was really what I, I did not know was that, you know, we knew he was a pariah afterwards. But then after a while, he was no longer a pry. He was still making money at selling autographs, and he was still sort of welcome within the black community and just sort of going around. You see him like just posing for photographs with people. You just sort of thought, well, his life is over, but it, it wasn't.
3: If anybody wants to like gather some more information about that period in Florida, there was a really well-written story in The New Yorker called The Outcast that was written during the period that OJ was living in Florida. And it's It was very enlightening looking at just who he was interacting with at life at that time and, like, he was, you know, who he was hanging out with, and it really would add a whole nother level to this to go take a look at that piece
2: all right we will check it out let's post a link to that on our website shall we Laura would you send that link to me all right we'll do I do think that we could talk about made in America forever and ever and I think this has been a very interesting conversation but it is time to move on and before we do let's do a once again in this episode I don't think, I don't think we've ever done this twice in an episode and let's give this documentary this ESPN documentary made in America a letter grade shall we so um, Laura I'm gonna start with you what did you think of the series as a whole give it a letter grade and give us a brief explanation as to why you were giving it the grade you're giving it.
3: Uh boy, this is tough. I'm gonna go with an A minus. I think it was all excellent. The only thing for me was I like to binge watch things and this was something I definitely could not binge watch. There was so much information at times it was a little too long for me, but I also did watch it in like a week period. So it was like watching a movie every single night. So that would be my only my only thing is just very long and very dense. So it was something that I had to take in small bits and pieces in order to digest it all.
2: Well, I will have to go back to the tape, but I believe I may have given the People versus O.J. Simpson an A or an A plus. So having that be the bar, I think I have to go with O.J. Made in America an A plus plus for me. I was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. I wasn't expecting it to be as brave and unflinching as it was. And I certainly wasn't expecting it to have a real journalistic lack of leaning, just showing, not telling approach. And I thought it had a lot of breath, a lot of depth. I thought it was fantastic. Toby, what about you? What letter grade do you give Made in America and why?
1: You know, it's hard. Like if other grades have been like kind of high school grades, I think this was more sort of a college level Ooh, thing. Yeah, And I, I would give it an A+. plus. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. I thought that they had, you know, they had kind of a thesis about the case and about OJ's place in society and what the trial meant. And so in addition to all these other details and context and things like that, I think that they were making a pretty profound... Comment about a lot of things that go on in American society. It was much more ambitious and much more successful than other things that we've talked about.
0: What about you, Kevin? I'm I'm giving it an, an A minus. Like Laura, I think the only flaw I give it is that episode one dragged on a little Wait, too a long. High
2: school A minus or a college A minus?
0: College A minus. Okay. <laughs> so it's getting a three point eight five. I guess is the GPA. I'm not sure. Um, I think there was maybe just a little filler. In episode one, I mean, I, I got what they were trying to do, and I think that they accomplished it. They got two hours worth of, out of 90 minutes of material. But beyond that, fantastic. It is the definitive look at the man and the case. And the era. Well, how it all plays together. I mm-hmm. mean, he did a good job of pulling in all the different elements that made it come together and really made it look good, like a really good website that you could make using Weebly. <laughs> Because I'm not, you know, a great web designer, but because (laughs) I use Weebly...
2: Bum, bum, ba-da, bum, ba-da. Sorry. <laughs> what the fuck was that? That's where I usually put the, put the music when you start reading the ad. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> well, you could just put the music. In. Yeah. <laughs> so I may not be a great web designer, but suppose you know I wanted to do something like sell O.J. Simpson memorabilia. I wouldn't be selling it out of a hotel room. I would have a nice website. Right. But I probably don't know a lot about making a website, which is why Weebly is great. It's drop and drag. It's very easy to use. I use it every day at work myself, and you can make really great-looking websites that are responsive, so they look good both on desktop and on mobile, and you can even use your mobile phone to update stuff. So like when all of a sudden you get back all those Pete Rose autograph balls, <laughs> you can go, oh, you know, this end. Um, Blog
2: post, guys with guns in my room. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Right. You're out there, you have the business, maybe you're not selling OJ memorabilia, but whatever it is, you need to be seen on the web in order to sell to for people to buy and you need a good looking website so join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly get started today for free at Weebly.com slash Crime Writers that's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash Crime Writers Weebly.com slash Crime Writers
2: writers. (laughs) I'm looking right at you we're sitting in a closet I so hate you
0: (laughs) I so hate you you know I'm really hungry. This has been a long episode. You're hungry. I'm hungry. I could go for a little plated right now. Nice, nice. Me who, too. Who had plated this week? I did. We all did. And we had some really great meals. Plated, of course, is the new great way of getting restaurant quality food delivered to your home. It's convenient. It saves you time. No more meal planning. No more making grocery lists and forgetting about what ingredients to use. These are delicious chef-created options. Laura, tell us a little bit about what you made this week from Plated.
3: Well, I ventured out. I'm a red meat person, but I got the veggie burger this week, which was made with quinoa, uh, black beans, and sweet potatoes, and it was actually very tasty, though I have to say the delicious buttery brioche roll that came with it pretty much cancelled out any benefit I think I got from eating
0: vegetarian <laughs> uh-huh.
3: it was a very good roll. i had the chicken shawarma and i have to say what i love about in the plated meals is they come with
2: so many vegetables like there's so many like there's like the delicious amount of the main thing but so many vegetables
0: it's yeah, so fresh great. vegetables that are in season and used great
2: even that even the sausage heroes came with vegetables
1: toby yeah. what about you do you guys have some plated this week my thunder has already been stolen <laughs> i had the chicken shawarma and the uh veggie burger and they were both excellent
0: and uh, I helped make. I helped make the Italian <laughs> sausage here because I I grilled them on the grill. That's right. The sausage and all the vegetables, yep. and you know it's really great and delicious. So, because we all love plated so much, we want you to try it and make your dinner so much easier. We have a special offer. For our listeners at Plated.com slash crime, you will get a free dinner for two with your first purchase. Free? Free. That's a $24 savings. And you get free shipping with your order. It's a great deal. But only if you go to Plated.com slash crime. Crime. Check it out for uh, terms and details. It's a no-brainer. Try Plated right now. You can get two free dinners for two and free shipping. Check out terms and details at Plated.com slash crime. Plated.com slash crime. Hurry this offer won't last.
2: You still hangry? Not anymore. So now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast—a little something I like to call
0: the, the sandwich of the. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I guess, man. I'm hungry. The crime of where are you? Where? Are... Come on. The crime of the week. The
2: crime of the week. Former Olympic champion Joe Jacoby thought his gold medal was lost forever after it was stolen from his car last month. Fortunately, a six-year-old girl found the medal tossed in the trash near her apartment and returned it to him this week. Jacoby won the gold in 1992 for the two-man canoe slalom. At, uh, Is that
1: even
3: really a sport? It's a real sport.
1: It's a I, it's a very real sport. <laughs> I, I call bullshit. <laughs> it's, a, it's an a canoe awesome slalom? sport.
2: Really? Toby loves the summer Olympic sports. Remember his affection for beach volleyball? Oh, it, it's right.
1: got it's got this thing where you're you're basically sort of in rapids and they have these gates uh-huh. and you have to go downstream on some gates and upstream on other gates. So it's like
2: skiing in a boat. It's like equestrian, like field uh, It's like paddling a bobsled. It's got yeah. nothing, it's nothing to like do with rafting.
1: anything that you're talking it sounds about. Sounds like right
2: whitewater now. rafting in a canoe. <laughs> it's like skiing slalom, you know, but it's in a boat, right?
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's nothing like that at all. That's a sport that NBC puts on, like CNBC <laughs> at at four in the morning.
2: Bob Costas is like, let's look yeah. at the highlights of it's this, not, shall on, we? It's on
0: the
1: main note. Yeah, it's going to be in some bacteria-laden Brazilian river. Oh, but... now,
0: now that it's dangerous, I'll be watching it this that's year. That's right, that's right. So It's, it's actually, it's,
1: it's it's awesome.
0: I just know after I say that, that I'm going to start getting people tweeting at me saying that Andrew McCarthy was the other guy in the in the, <laughs> in the canoe, and I should just <laughs> shut the fuck up, so...
2: Well, Jacoby did win the gold in 1992 for that two-man canoe slalom, which Toby says is awesome. He was taking the medal with him to a television appearance when he stopped at a restaurant in Atlanta. Cops say three guys in a Volkswagen Passat <laughs> drove up, smashed the window, and escaped with the gold. Oh, knowing what kind of car it is—such a great detail. What the
0: hell? I know, <laughs> little criminal Chlo- mastermind, little Chloe. No, never got me, cop. <laughs>
2: vroom, vroom vroom, <laughs> <new> forever. <laughs> Little Chloe Smith didn't know what she had found and started throwing the shiny metal like a frisbee. But her dad knew what it was and was able to return the souvenir to its owner. Found it in the trash. Uh, I guess she found it in the trash. Oh, yeah. Wow, okay. So here's my question for you, panel. Laura Bricker, if thieves driving a Volkswagen Passat <laughs> broke into your car,
3: what is the irreplaceable item that they could steal? Oh, there's nothing in my car. <laughs> I asked my husband that and he's like, your car is, no. Um, you might find some programs from the Christmas pageant like three years ago, still stuffed in like the center little storage area. But other than that, unless my son who likes to hide things under the seat in the back has stuffed some money back there, mm. I think that's about all you're going to find.
2: What about you, Toby? What could thieves steal from your car that would be irreplaceable?
1: Uh, I've got some overdue library books. <laughs>
2: <laughs> For shame. That's the crime of the week.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got, a, uh, I've got a like red, white, and blue ABA basketball. Oh. This would probably be pretty hard to replace. Hmm. But beyond that, it's like some spare change. They always have it just in case there's a fast break.
2: What about you, Kevin? If thieves driving a Volkswagen Passat broke into your Subaru, what irreplaceable item might they
0: find? I, I actually have in the glove compartment a concert ticket signed by Elvis Costello. And I don't know why it's in the glove compartment <laughs> But I have moved it from two other cars, <laughs> you know, just like play out of the glove compartment. I don't know why it was there. Maybe I was taking it to show on a TV show with a guy who won the two-man canoe slalom. But
2: <laughs> you, know, you know what I thought you were going to say? Muffin stumps. <laughs> muffin
0: stumps, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> Eat half the muffin The throat. big
2: bag full of muffin stumps. What about you, Rebecca? That I know for sure is underneath your seat right now.
0: What about you? What would they take that's irreplaceable out of your car?
2: Irreplaceable? Uh, my public radio umbrella perhaps, like Laura. Oh, I don't keep on. I don't keep a out of my car. My public radio umbrella. For 20
0: bucks a month, anybody can get that umbrella.
2: And the fleece blanket upon which my muddy dogs put their paws after we go for walks every day.
0: Yeah, I can see guys on a Passat stealing that.
2: Not as good as your muffin stumps, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we need to end it on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners would like to tweet with you, interact with you on the Twitter, how can they find you there? It's at Laura Bricker and it's L-A-R-A. And Toby Ball, you've got a little book contest going on this week. So if people want to tweet to you, how can they do that?
1: At Toby Ball NH.
2: You know those hashtags off the top of your head, Toby?
1: It's uh, at T-Ball NA for North America, (laughs) at T-Ball EU for the UK and Europe, and at T-Ball TW for the world.
2: Nice. So Kevin, if people want to reach you on the Twitter, how can they do that?
1: I'm where I'm always at. (laughs) (laughs) Which is at Kevin
0: P. Flint.
2: And if you want to send me a tweet or find me on Instagram, you can do that at RebLavoy. Our show is also on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn, so send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter and get entered into that contest to win Toby's trilogy of books. You can also make a PayPal donation to support the little studio we've got here or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps us stay on the charts where listeners can find us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. A Very Hot Closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. this is the intro it's gonna be spectacular and that's it boom
3: boom
2: kevin kevin what kevin
3: rebecca.
2: i'm rebecca lavoy and this is crime writers on the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism pop. <laughs> no groping during the reading so join, oh, God, the dogs. Can you guys hear the dogs? Yes. They're <laughs> so fucking loud. <laughs> All right. So, join <laughs> every time I start to talk, he barks. It's very funny. Uh, probably the. Jesus Christ, what's going on over there in Limetown?
1: Did someone fall Toby? in the toilet? <laughs> uh, I thought I had it on mute. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Are you okay?
0: We we can send somebody uh, out yeah, to the I'm island fine.
1: if you need help.
0: <laughs> Everything's
1: good.
2: This is Jeopardy.
3: <laughs>
0: Let me tell you about the Blue Cash Preferred Card from American Express with 6% cash back at U.S. supermarkets on up to $6,000 in purchases. That means 6% cash back on those cheeses you can't pronounce but eat anyway. Start earning cash back at mxbluecash.com. Terms apply.